welcome to the Paradise Paradox. My name's Kurt Robinson. The other day we got the chance to interview Luke Rudkowski of We Are Change, wearechange.org. Known for his work in the 9-11 truth movement, he's also known as a revolutionary journalist, approaching powerful figures and asking them questions which you wouldn't normally hear on regular media outlets. In the interview, Luke mentions a drink called pulque, which is quite famous in Mexico, made from the same plant which produces tequila and mezcal. Luke wasn't exactly a fan. We'll hear more about that in a moment. Run the intro. This is Kurt Robinson from the Paradise Paradox, and I'm out here with Luke Rudkowski out here in Guadalajara. So Luke is the uh, the, the founder of We Are Change, and currently his project, his main project, is Change Media University, which is a, a school of independent journalism uh, for the internet. How's it going? Uh, amazing. I love Guadalajara. I love Mexico. The weather, the people, the food. And uh, pulque, don't, whatever you do, if you go to Mexico, do not drink the pulque. <laughs> Unless you want a great experience, which I had last night with, with you guys. Um, it, it, was, it was interesting. It was, it was uh, really fascinating to experience Mexico full-on, face-on. So I'm having a blast. You know, can't ask for anything else. Just had a great uh, training seminar in Acapulco, Mexico, where we sat down with about 30, 40 uh, people who want to get into promotion, into multimedia, into getting their word and message across as effectively as they can in the, on the internet. Uh, and it was a, a really enriching experience. And now I'm just traveling around, uh, experiencing Mexico, trying to get the best out of it and looking for the best stories that I could find. Yep, yep. Yep. So uh, here in Mexico, I find there's kind of a, a spirit of freedom. You know, the Mexican national anthem goes something like warriors fi fighting for <laughs> fighting for justice and that sort of thing. Do you feel that spirit of, of freedom, that um, entrepreneurialism and, and uh, resistance spirit here in Mexico? I think, the, you know, the feeling of Mexico is really, really, um, there's a big duality to it. Um, obviously, there's many systemic issues and problems here that keep people here oppressed. But the will and the power of the people is very independent. Um, very rarely do you see people begging for money, at least from my experiences so far. A lot of people rather sell you something than actually try to uh, just be like, give me your money. Um, so, so that's a totally different uh, kind of point of view than I have from New York City and all of the United States where people just ask you for money. Um, seeing a lot of people just being innovative, seeing a lot of people just doing their best to uh, help other people and to service other people and solving the problems within their small communities, whether it's a doctor next door uh, that will you know, give you the best kind of uh, health care that you could possibly get for the best buck or just someone who's willing to help you in any way, shape, Form, whether it's to clean your you know, windshield um, or you know, get you the best food or show you around. Um, and sometimes people don't even want anything. They just want a company and just want to be friends. So that kind of duality is, is also really, really amazing. But the people have been very, very chill, very relaxed. Uh, and I had nothing but great experiences. And, and you know, it, I'm still learning so much about it. So I can't really give it a definitive answer on how Mexico really is because I've only seen so little in, in a week or two, not even. Yeah. Yep. Yep. For sure. 
so I wanted to ask you, when, when you started out as a journalist, I imagine it's, it's been a long journey. Uh, you probably had to um, go through a lot of personal development uh, in order to get to the stage that you are now. So what do you think the, the key traits are that uh, made you the journalist that you are today? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, it's, you know, it's, to me, it's about also having the right attitude, um, being um, open-minded. Um, you know, your mind works best when it acts like a parachute. You know, you open it up, and you're, you know, you're, you're safe from a lot of crap, and then free falling into the rabbit hole or into the depths of just uh, propaganda. So I think having an open mind is one of the most important things that you can have doing this. Having no preconceived notions, asking questions, demanding answers, not making definitive statements and theories about what you personally believe, not letting your ego and pride get involved in that, and also just being uh, humble and grateful for the opportunity you have to be able to you know, speak to people and share that information with other people. Um, it should come from a point of view, not, not from value validation. It should come from a point of view from uh, being, um, having um, intrinsic goals, not extrinsic goals. Um, so you're not going after just, okay, this is me. I want my voice heard. Why, why are other people getting more views? Why are other people doing this? No, it should be about, okay, this is my personal journey. And that's what I've kind of seen it as. I had this uh, kind of tran transgression where I did come from that kind of negative, low energy, validation seeking uh, kind of point of view where I was just screaming on a bullhorn trying to be heard. Uh, interrupting, you know, media outlets. Uh, but I find it most effective to uh, be introspective, look within yourself, see the bad sides about yourself, try to deal with them as best as you can, look for feedback, get constant feedback from uh, your friends and uh, family and also the viewership, and take criticism critically. Um, and not personally, you know, there's a lot of things that people say out there that, that could really piss me off. But after, I think I've, I've been doing this 13 years now, uh, after th 13, 14 years of doing this, I have a really tough skin. But if someone says something that, okay, you could have done this better, I will critically think, I'm like, okay, maybe he's right. Um, so I have that open mind. I don't get bothered by anything. You could, you could come up to me and insult me and the generations lives of my family and you could talk about our noses and our hairlines and, and, all, and my, my, my crappy voice and I won't care. It won't matter to me. Uh, but if you say I could have done something better with uh, asking different types of questions, I will, I will really consider that. I really keep that open. And, I, you know, and I'm really just trying to do what I feel personally is not just right for me, uh, to be a better person, but also to try to make the world a better place and concentrate also on positive stories, on people coming together, seeking solutions, uh, helping each other out outside of the corporate government kind of control grid that we live on. So I just gave you a lot. So there's really no, no definitive answer. Uh, except just try to be a good person, try to be humble, try to be happy, try to be positive, keep an open mind, and uh, don't take criticism uh, to heart too much. But uh, if, you, if you think you can improve your work, definitely pay attention to it. Yeah, great, great. Uh, now, so obviously 9-11 uh, was, uh, was a huge event in your life and affected you on a personal level. Uh, but were there any other uh, events in your personal life which made you start to question like I know there's more to life I, I know there must be some kind of answers or at least some more questions that we could be asking when I was uh, 14 15 I was beat up by the police for no reason at all in Brooklyn New York pretty badly uh, got bruises a bloody mouth uh, not I was not arrested I never violated any crime um, 
And after that incident, this was back in, uh, what was it, 2003, 2004, I tried to get justice with it. But back in those days, we didn't have, you know, the smartphones, the um, cameras that are everywhere. Um, and then everyone told me, whether it was the judge, the review court, the police officers, the, um, the captain, um, they told us, you know, your incident never happened. There's no witnesses. Uh, there's no proof. Uh, even though I did have witnesses, even though there was a number of people uh, who saw me getting beat up publicly in the street, bloodied publicly in the street by police for no reason at all. There was a number of people who saw that, but they told me there's no proof. And ever since then, it made me think there's more to uh, what's happening in our system. Like this can't just happen to people on an everyday basis without any accountability, without it being stopped in one way, shape or form. So then I, it kind of brought me into this like um, pathway of seeking responsibility and accountability for those who uh, hurt the little guy. Uh, and back then I was, you know, the little guy. <laughs> um, and I got hurt, um, not as seriously as other people get hurt, but it made me go on this path of like, okay, um, we should fight for something more than uh, just ourselves. Because what happened to me is just one small incident that happens every single day. Uh, and we need to document this and we need to show this to everyone and we need to uh, stop this out of tracks because it's wrong. Um, and that made me research the police state, that made me research 9-11 because, because of 9-11 we had this police state, we had this erosion of our civil liberties, we have this kind of brute force of authoritarianism right after 9-11 to protect us. Um, and that was the result of it. And then 9-11, bam, you're deep down the rabbit hole of just going into everything that's happening uh, all around the world. And uh, it made me research and study everything that I could. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, so uh, obviously you, you have a very distinctive style of journalism where you, where you uh, go up to people a lot of the time when they're not prepared because uh, it's, it's hard to get a, a, an interview. Um, yeah. It's hard to get people to agree to, to an interview because yeah, I know... Yeah. They never will give you an interview. Like you could try to email them, you could try to message them, and that's what I did at first. I was like, Mr. Kissinger, can I please sit down for an interview with you? And they're like, who the hell are you? You're a nobody. You're online. Back, back, you know, d during this progression from like 2003, back right now when we're at 2015, uh, you know, only now are people recognizing the power of the internet. But then when people are like, yeah, I'm from the internet, I have a blog, people are like, get out of here. Um, and even, even, you know, there's a big scam going on that people don't understand in the media industry. In the media industry, if you want an interview with someone in government, a senator, a congressman, or president, everything has to be scripted. You have to give them your questions beforehand. They have their answers pre-scripted. A lot of times, people like Condoleezza Rice, I was at a book signing with Condoleezza Rice and she was giving a speech and there was a Q&A session that was supposed to be random, picked out from the crowd. So the crowd wrote down their questions and they gave it to Condoleezza Rice. Um, and she was answering those questions and going through those questions. Later that day, she went on the Jon Stewart show. And on the Jon Stewart show, the same exact questions that were supposedly picked from the audience, Jon Stewart was throwing at her. 
So the questions were never picked from the audience. The questions that John Stewart was asking were never his own personal questions, even though John Stewart was known from the guy who was kind of going up against the Bush administration, going up against government. Uh, that's where he got his fame. John Stewart got his fame from going after them. But even John Stewart with Viacom and the major corporation that he works under, he's, he's like, okay, you want to interview Condoleezza Rice? These are the questions you're going to ask, and you're not going to ask anything else. Here you go. And then he just plays the script, and then Condoleezza Rice has those questions memorized in her head, and those answers memorized in her head, and it's all fake and scripted by all these top elites. So the, you know, the company that manages Condoleezza Rice and Viacom make an agreement together. And they're like, okay, she has a book to sell. Damn, but we're going to work this out this way, and it's all fake, and it's all an illusion, and, and, and that's not real journalism in any way, shape, or form. So the only way you could really do that is by doorstepping them when they get out the cars, when they're walking, uh, during you know, public events where you just stand up and ask a question, uh, during press conferences where you just have to crash it sometimes because they won't let you in there because they see the type of work that you're doing, and that doesn't go along their corporate line. That doesn't sell books. So it's like, you know, you have to to figure out a way to get out of the system, uh, not participate with it. Uh, and that's what a lot of people face when they go into journalism school. They think about asking the hard questions. No, the reality is you're going to work a horrible job waking up for somebody when they tell you to wake up, doing what they want you to do, and everything is scripted, everything is fake by the top elites who run and control virtually everything because there's only five mega corporations that control 90% of all media, print, news, newspapers, uh, photos, radio, television. 90% of that is controlled by five major conglomerates. 90. Uh, and that's why I created Change Media University to show people, look, you can, this is how you doorstep them. This is how you crash events. This is how you ask a question when you're not supposed to ask a question. Uh, and this is how you get answers. Uh, have you ever, I don't think I've ever seen you wear a disguise, but have you ever done that to, get, to try to get some questions in? Uh, those are, uh, can't really talk about that publicly. All right. Uh, we, we, did, we, did, uh, we, did, we did everything. Uh, okay. From pretending to be icemen, like carrying ice, with a towel into events, just sneaking into events. There's some stuff I won't get into greater detail with, but we went from virtually every aspect of it. But it comes to a point where it's like, it's so difficult. It's like, okay, it's not even worth it. Uh, so, so it's not, but, but there's other ways and approaches you can make. We just did it for fun sometimes. Yeah. And those are the private stories that I can't share, the fun stories of where we crashed events. <laughs> All right. We'll read that in your memoir in 20 or 30 years, hopefully. Yes. <laughs> I'm, thinking about writing, I'm thinking about writing a book because there's so many things behind the scenes that people don't see and they don't understand. And it's really insane. Uh, just this whole journey. I mean, it's just beautiful and amazing, and it's also ugly and, and, and destructive, but it's also so creative and so magical and beautiful at the same time. And a lot of times, you can't really translate that through video, so I'm definitely going to write something very soon, um, just about everything that happens. Great, great. Uh, now, when you do this, this style of journalism, going up and, and interviewing people, uh, like catching them by surprise, was there any um, particular one, like with, with Henry Kissinger or, or someone, where you were really apprehensive or even afraid of, of what might happen? Um, well, I, you know, when it comes to fear in my life, um, I've, I'd rather face it face on. I was scared of heights, I went skydiving. Uh, huh. Life is short and fear is the deterrent from living your life to the fullest. So obviously there's a lot of assessment with risk and if I should do this or if I shouldn't do this. But when it comes to 
the greater scheme of things. Um, I just look at like how small we are um, just as a planet compared to our whole galaxy out there, how really insignificant things are and how um, there's been a grave injustice and there's no one else who's going to do this so it has to be me. Uh, and if, you know, I mean, what is there to fear? I mean, of course, uh, yeah, there's a lot to fear. <laughs> there, there's, there's a lot to fear. Um, well, what about in retrospect, like after you'd done it, did you ever say, oh, maybe I went too far, maybe, I'm, maybe I put myself at risk now? Well, the first one that I did um, was the scariest of all. The first confrontation, the first video I ever made was with speaking of Brzezinski, uh, CFR, Trilateral Commission, Bilderberg Group, Presidential Advisor, Jimmy Carter, the man who started Al-Qaeda in 1979, the Muhajin, the man who traveled to Afghanistan himself and established the Taliban, the Al-Qaeda. Um, big guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I went to his event. Um, and then there's a whole crazy story of how I actually got into the event and how th that, that's going to be in the book. Yep. <laughs> It'll take too long to describe that. But I get into the event, I'm all nervous, finally get up, ask the question. Um, and then I ask my question, and the crowd boos, hundreds of people in the crowd. Um, and then he won't answer my question. He's like, next question. So I'm like, it went off again, and I called him scum. I was like, you're a scum, sir. Answer the question. He told me to shut up sit and sit down, so he finally answered the question. I was still filming it. Security guys come. They're like, stop filming. And I'm like, stop disrupting this event. What are you doing? You're interrupting. Stop it. And then they're like, okay, we're coming back with more security guards. They came back with these two huge, big security guards. One got me by the left arm. One got me by the right arm. And I'm being dragged away. And I'm like, holy cow. I just confronted one of the most top elites, and I'm being dragged away by this event. And they're trying to destroy my video footage. Uh, Bignet Brzezinski's assistant came running by. She's like, take his camera. Take his camera. I'm like, oh my God, what, what's going to happen to me? I just pissed off the top, most powerful elite in front of hundreds of people. Um, they're going to destroy this video footage. What are these big guys going to do with me? And I remember when they're holding me up uh, by my arms and I have my camera here and they're like trying to grab for my uh, camera and my DV tape and I'm like swinging it by. I just said, screw it. So I ducked down, spun my head. The security guards hit each other. Uh, and I just ran as fast as I could. And then the security guards start giving chase to me. Bam, hit the door, open the door, I start running as fast as I can. And they're running after me. And I'm like, oh my God, they're gonna kill me. They're gonna kill me. Of course they weren't gonna kill me, but I was very paranoid when you first get into everything. There's a lot of fear, especially when you get into everything. So I'm running as fast as I could. Uh, six blocks later, I was, I was able to outrun them. I made a left, I made a right, I made, you know, I tried to just fake it as much as I can. And then I was like, holy cow. And then, and then back on the subway ride, it was more of a feeling of excitement than, than the fear. But in that moment, yes, there was a lot of fear. <laughs> but afterwards, it was just the adrenaline rush. And it was you know, such a powerful video. It's what really started We Are Change. It's what really motivated other people around the country to confront their politician, their congressman. If they see a young Brooklyn punk who barely even spoke proper English because he spoke Brooklynese, just piss off and tell off the most powerful elite person in the world and run away from security guards and was able to do it and is still alive and he's doing it fine. If he could do it, I could do it. Yeah. Uh, and then that started We Are Change, you know? That's awesome. Yeah. That, uh, that's, uh, that's brilliant. That's uh, yeah. inspirational. And I, I love that feeling like when you, I've never had something of that, of that degree, but I know that feeling when you do, you do something which scares the shit out of you and afterwards you're like, 
I really did something today. <laughs> same with skydiving, you know, same rush. Uh, this Zbigniew Brzezinski was a bigger rush, but skydiving comes in close second. Uh, facing that fear, you know, being hit with it. But there's another crazier story, like, behind of how I actually got to be able to confront that person. But that's a whole, that's a whole other 10, 15-minute story. All right. Too long. We could move on to something else. Okay, okay. Well, um, What's your position on anthropogenic climate change? Are you skeptical? You don't really, you don't really know, or you, or you, you think it's a big problem, or where, where do you stand? Well, that's a. Uh, when you talk about anthropogenic climate change, what do you mean in, in detail? Uh, so, um, well, it de it depends because there like there's a lot of definitions and yeah. some maybe even fear mongering on the subject. But um, the like the the main thing people are worried about is if um, things like fossil fuels, uh, carbon dioxide released into the atmosphere is going to have a, a huge effect, cause more disastrous events, catastrophic events like cyclones or, or something, or heat up the planet so much that it's barely livable. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I like to entertain both sides of the argument. Um, the, the way I see it is I respect both sides. There's scientists on both sides of the argument. Some people say they're tied into the Koch brothers. Some people say they're tied into uh, the George Soros Foundation. So there's always these two big conflating sides. But I think we could all agree on our environment and our um, planet is being destroyed. Um, obviously it is. But my problem is the people who are coming with the solutions are the, pro are the people who are causing the problems. The multi-billionaires, the, the U.S. military, the Department of Defense, which is the largest polluter in the world, you never see any major foundation talk about, well, the U.S. military is the largest polluter in the world. The, the Defense Department is the number one guy that's, you know, doing all this supposed damage. Uh, you don't see any talk about that in any way, shape, or form, um, which to me is the most interesting part. Um, obviously, with waste, with planned obsolescence, I think people have it backwards. And I think our environment um, is very resilient, but it also responds back to what we give it at the same time. Um, so I don't make any definitives. I don't, I don't want to be on either one side of the argument. Um, I think there's valid points in both sides of the argument, but I think um, what I want to concentrate on is, okay, the people who are trying to get the taxes in order, like uh, Al Gore, who has this European company that gets all the tax credits and, and makes him even richer than he is right now, and has a, the largest, what, he, there's a statistic that he has like the largest, uh, or the third biggest house in the US with the, I'm not exactly sure about that, but, but he, he's living a lifestyle that's completely different to what he says he is. And he's offering solutions that only put money into his pockets and only benefit the very few and, and don't really make any significant difference um, when it comes to taking care of their environment. Uh, so that's my two cents on it. Yep, yep. Well, in, in Australia, they were doing things like the, the carbon tax. And, and yeah. when I first heard of that, I was like, what, so you're going to push a bunch of paper around and that, that doesn't sound like a solution. Yeah. But there, there are technologies out there, things like sea sweepers or air sweepers. They get these drones which can pick up um, poisonous chemicals from the air, um, do, do you think that uh, the, like the, the, the private industry is going to have a, a, a big effect on how we deal with the environment in a positive way? Um, it's, it's difficult to say um, because who's going to pay the private industry to do that? Private industries are usually about uh, more consumer-based and more profit and more bottom line. So it's difficult, but it is really good to see innovation. And it's really good to see individuals who do have the money who take responsibility 
for themselves that make um, this system work a lot better than it should be. There's a lot of people who just take, take, take. There's also a lot of people who in innovate and give back uh, for the greater good of everybody. So I think there's also this, there's this duality. So, so I think the major kind of lesson that I've always learned from journalism is that the truth is always somewhere in the middle. It's not at left, it's not right, it's grayish in some kind of matter. Um, it, it'll be, it's impossible to predict the future of where it's going, but seeing the advancement of technology, the advancement of communication, the advancement of all this innovative new tools that we're given, I'm very optimistic with what's going to happen with not only the environment, but with society, with people, and just the overall life that we live. Uh, we're living right now at a time in history, in recorded history, that's better than any other time before us. Uh, there's less deaths, there's less murders, there's less crime, there's less government uh, dictatorships around the world. So, so that trend is slowly changing and it's only being escalated by this advancement of technology, which is amazing and beautiful to see and I'm very optimistic about what's going to happen. And to answer your question, yes, I do believe individuals would take it within themselves, not just their bottom dollar to help not only the environment but human society as well. Mm, that's great. Yeah, I'm, I'm very optimistic as well. And I, I remember I watched a, a, a video the other day of, uh, from a few years ago when you were on Occupy Wall Street talking to David Icke, and you were very uh, you were very excited about that that spirit of uh, yeah. of asking questions and horizontal structure. Like there's no no particular power. Um, how how did you like? Looking back now, um, you're, you're still obviously very, very optimistic uh, about that. Well, let's see. How, um, I'm thinking about how I can phrase this. Uh, how, how else do you think that that optimism from uh, from something like Occupy Wall Street is going to express itself over the next few years? Ooh, I, w I wish I had a mystery ball of just like <laughs> that could just tell me all these answers. Um, I think we're coming to a head. I think there's going to be major changes very soon. Um, how those changes play out is not just dependent on one individual, one organization, but all of us as a whole, all of us as a community, all of us as people of the world. And um, you know, you do see a lot of bad stuff, um, and then you do see a lot of amazing stuff. Um, we're also learning that protests don't work. Um, protests work in certain aspects, but in the majority, it's really difficult to make a difference just by being out there um, in the street. It is still important. I still understand the importance of that. Mm -hmm. But I think the advancement that we're going to see is people who say, okay, um, we have all these new tools in front of us. The government is not even catching up to all these tools. Let's create a solution outside of uh, government. Let's create a solution outside of the corporate Monsanto GMO kind of controlled grid system uh, that they have with the laws that are passed through government. Um, so I think the next kind of like spirit, the next kind of like big mass movement, like um, kind of Occupy Wall Street was, it's going to be people saying, we're opting out. Uh, we're going to create our own solutions and we're not going to bother anyone. Please don't bother us. And I think if enough people do that, that's really when the big transition, the big change will come. And I think right now we could, you know, we're living in a time where I could just Google something and I could learn. I could learn how to be a mechanic right now. I have a problem with my car. I Google my specific car, the problem I have, and, it, and the guy on YouTube shows me how to fix it. If I want to become a dentist, you know, which don't, don't do this. Don't recommend to do this. But, but, if, but if you do, you can just look up tutorials on how to be a dentist or, you know, may work out sometimes not to your benefit uh, with that specific case. Uh, but, but 
the, the innovation is still uh, just getting on its legs, you know, just like the dentistry analysis. You may not get the best dental care by taking care of yourself dentistry, but, but, but the technology, the information is still just starting out to be released, starting out to be expressed in a very professional, well manner. It's not there yet. We're not there where we should be, but we're getting there. Um, um, so again, don't fix your teeth on, on YouTube. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, so, so last week we saw you speak at An Anacapulco and it was great. I, I was really looking forward to, to you seeing you speak and uh, uh, you definitely didn't disappoint. I was, I was, uh, yeah, I was, I was really excited to see that. Uh, now, ov obviously, um, something like Anacapulco in terms of, of scale, it's only a few hundred people. But how do you think it compares in, in the vibe or the quality of people or, or, the, or their personal attributes um, compared to something like Occupy Wall Street? Well, there's always a different branch of, uh, you know, people at all these different kinds of events. Mm. Occupy Wall Street was like a big kind of like mixed salad of every kind of ideology that you could ever think of where anarchists, minarchists, socialists, communists, leftists, Democrats, Republicans, Tea Party. Like At first it was just like, here we are. Here's all of us. Um, and then kind of a, as it more went on, the, the more left kind of leaning ideologies kind of took progression. So it depends on what kind of Occupy Wall Street you're referring to. If you're referring from the early on where it's just people who wanted a difference or later on where the kind of left kind of um, made it more a center point uh, of that issue. Uh, but I think uh, at first Occupy Wall Street was a lot of people who weren't even involved in politics who weren't even socialists, who weren't even communists, who weren't even libertarians, who weren't even anarchists, people who were just like, crap, we need to change something. We're screwed. We're getting screwed. There's no, like, I'm not going to be vulgar. I was going to be vulgar. No, I'm not going to do that. Uh, <laughs> we're being fucked. There's no condom on. Like, what the fuck is happening? Like, we got to do something. Like, stop it. Like, stop. And then people came together. And uh, when you go to the events like Acapulco, it's like, okay, we're getting screwed, but let's stop getting screwed um, as well. Uh, so you have that kind of uh, similarity, um, obviously. Obviously, it's more centered towards one particular ideology at Anarchapulco. Um, it's centered towards um, um, anarchy, libertarianism. So you have that strong ideology. So that's the major difference. But what brings us together, it's like, hey, we're getting fucked. Let's stop. <laughs> you know? Let's stop the fucking. <laughs> yeah, I think it, I think it's great when you know people might have different ideologies, but they get together, ask each other questions, and and uh, you know just trying to get to the to the to the bottom of everything. Everything, yeah, yeah, which is most important. It's like whatever ideology, whatever you paint yourself as, we're all human beings, and we're all trying to uh, you know live a better life, not just for ourselves, but for everybody. Hmm. We're cool. All human. We're all human. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Uh, Cool. I think I'm out of questions. <laughs> thanks. Thanks for thanks for doing what you. Oh, actually, I do have one more question. I was thinking, um, like Jeff Berwick the other day said, said uh, you you were one of his heroes. Uh, you're definitely an inspiration to me. Um, what what figures, like historically or, or uh, your contemporaries, would you name as your heroes or your inspirations? Oh, that's a tough one. I mean, there's so many. Whether it's like Malcolm X or MLK or Gandhi, which had many faults of their own. They're not perfect individuals as well. But the ideas that they stood for, the ideas that they put out there, I think are the most important um, of just nonviolence, uh, peaceful resistance, coming together as human beings. I think the transition of Malcolm X from where he came from 
from where he started off and where he came to at the end of his life is extremely, extremely, extremely important, uh, encompassing just the overall idea that we got to fix this together and stop being divided and conquered and come together as one, fix the wrongs in this world. So, you know, just those simple, those, just those three individuals inspired me uh, tremendously. Reading about them in high school and junior high school, reading their autobiographies has been very, very inspiring. Great. Okay, fantastic. Th thanks so much, Luke, and, and thanks for speaking in Anarchapulco, and thanks for asking the important questions, uh, which is something we, we can all learn from. <laughs> Let's try that again. <laughs> all right, thanks. like subscribe on itunes subscribe on youtube send us a tweet at battle az at trouble bubble